When the partridge coveys fly and the birch tops cool and high, when the dry cicadas twang where the purpling fir cones hang, when the bunch berries emboss scarlet beads, the roadside moss, brown with shadows, bright with sun, all day long till day is done, sleeps in murmuring solitude the worn old road that threads the wood. In its deep cup, grassy, cool, sleeps the little roadside pool, sleeps the butterfly on the weed, sleeps the drifted thistle seed. Like a great and blazing gem, basks the beetle on the stem. Up and down the shining rays, dancing midges weave their maze. High among the moveless boughs, drunk with day the nighthawks drowse. Far up, unfathomably blue, August's heaven vibrates through. The old road leads to all things good, the years at full, and times at flood. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforges our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Alexis and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions, or mini-seasons as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. This season begins our farewell to summer, as we look forward to autumn. Spanning from August 7th to 22nd, this mini-season is known as the beginning of autumn. Cicadas would conclude their summer songs, fog would roll in, and cooler winds would begin to blow. However, for many of us, the hot, humid days remain, and autumn seems far away. The beginning of autumn is preceded by the mini-season major heat in mid-July, and followed by the lessening heat in mid-August. Whether looking behind or looking ahead, heat is in the forecast. Even though we might be a little overheated, there's lots to discover in the sky, in the ground, in the water, and in our lives during this special period. Even though August has just begun, it's during this two-week interval that we really do begin to feel a transition from the height of summer toward its decline. Yes, even though the days are roasty and toasty, there's a change to the light, especially in the afternoon, and the evenings are slowly lengthening. There's a nostalgic feeling to this mini-season, the beginning of autumn. Since midsummer and the solstice around June 21st, our daylight hours have already decreased by one hour. There's a kind of melancholy to this season, a summertime sadness, I suppose you could say, as you realize that the fair days of summer are numbered. Back to school is almost at hand, 
and the last hurrah of summer vacation sets in before we all get back to business in the autumn. Here's a poem which describes this feeling perfectly, I think. Whilst August yet wears her golden crown, ripening fields lush bright with promise, summer waxes long, then wanes, quietly passing her fading green glory on to riotous autumn. Yes, fading glory is exactly how I would describe these dwindling days. Another way people often refer to this time of year is the dog days of summer. This phrase brings to mind lazy hot days in the backyard with a glass of lemonade. But this phrase doesn't have much to do with dogs lounging about in the grass, does it? Actually, it's a little bit more legendary than you might think. The dog days of summer refers to the constellation Sirius, which is also known as Orion's dog. Here's a famous passage from Homer's Iliad describing this sweltering season. Priam saw him first with his old man's eyes, a single point of light on Troy's dusty plain. Sirius rises late in the dark, liquid sky. On summer nights, star of stars, Orion's dog they call it, brightest of all, but an evil portent, bringing heat and fevers to suffering humanity. Achilles' bronze gleamed like this as he ran. The dog days of summer, often shortened to dog days, are historically a period following the heliacal rising of the star system Sirius. In Greek and Roman astrology, the dog days of summer are connected with heat, drought, sudden thunderstorms, lethargy, fever, mad dogs, and bad luck. In their modern iteration, dog days now refer to the hottest, most uncomfortable part of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere. It's definitely hot here in New York City. The sound of air conditioning fills the summer streets. However, this span of dog days isn't set like our mini-season. The Oxford English Dictionary states that various computation of the dog days have placed their start anywhere from July 3rd to August 15th, and lasting anywhere from 30 to 61 days. Sounds like we're on the right trail. Or maybe tail? Woof! Either way, we're definitely in the thick of heat during this time of year, even as summer is fading all around us. What did the dog days of summer sound like to you? Here, we recreate the sounds of a typical summer day, prefaced by a poem. Four-legged friends are feeling the heat, dog walkers hoping to find a near seat. Dashing through sprinklers gives some relief, a happy diversion, if however brief. Children are chasing the ice cream truck man. Grandmothers on porches sit close to the fan. The only sound answer to find somewhere cool is to be a good neighbor, then jump in their pool.
Here to delve into more seasonal themes through haiku is our segment Hero's Corner, written by our friend Hiroaki Sato and narrated by Ed von Atterkass. The beginning of autumn, or Rishu in Japanese, is one of the 24 seasonal breaks devised in ancient China. It designates a midpoint two weeks between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox, so it's still very hot. With Rishu, at any rate, you're expected to feel a whiff of the coming autumn in the air. And so in Japan, the first poetic thing you're supposed to think of from Rishu is this tanka. Although that autumn has come isn't clear to the eye, the sound of the wind surprises you. This tanka is by Fujiwara no Toshiyuki, and it opens the autumn section of the first imperial poetry anthology, the Kokin Shu. With this poem in mind, Basho came up with the following haiku. Even the papier-mâché cat must know the autumn this morning. The assumption here, of course, is that the cat, which is made of uh, papier-mâché, moves its head because of the breeze, even though the poet doesn't mention it. The next haiku also relies on the same conceit. Without causing a stir, how the autumn has started. Uejima Onitsura, who wrote this, was younger than Basho by 17 years and was famous for the simplicity of his compositions. He equated haiku with Zen, just as R.H. Blythe, the greatest British haiku proselytizer, did. This doesn't mean that he rejected seasonal poetic conceits, however. Now let's turn our attention to another seasonal word. The fish Ayu known as the sweet fish in English and in Latin as Plecoglossus altivellus, is mainly a kigo for summer in haiku, although later in the season the fish can also be a haiku topic for the fall. The name comes with various kanji, Chinese characters, fragrance fish, annual fish, and silvermouth fish among them. Some of these fish may grow to be as large as 30 centimeters or 12 inches, but usually they're caught and eaten long before then. In the United States, people regard them as minnows. They may use them as bait, but they won't bother to eat them. In Japan, on the other hand, they are prized as a seasonal food. A sweet fish jumps, and at the bottom, a cloud goes in the flow. Sweet fish are common in streams in Japan. When you look down at them swimming from a low bridge, for example, they appear almost transparent, blending into the stones and rocks. Onitsura, we imagine, was watching a school of sweetfish in the stream below when one of them jumped and he noticed a cloud at the bottom of the stream. The next haiku is Nozawa Setsuko. Autumn at night, the sweetfish teeth white on a plate. Setsuko suffered from spinal caries while at Ferris Women's College. This condition is also known as Potts disease, and the modern haiku reformer Masuoka Shiki died of it. Happily, Setsuko was cured of the disease, then she learned Ikebana and went on to become a teacher. 
Before that happened, she had joined a haiku group, and soon her poetry started to attract attention. When she was 30, she won an important haiku prize. The ayu, the sweet fish, is often broiled with salt, usually skewered, and then served on a small plate usually, one or two of them at a time. So you can see the whole fish before you, head, teeth, and all. When broiled ayu was served, Setsuko might have thought of one of the sets of kanji applied to the fish while it was alive, silver mouth fish. As for myself, I'll eat the whole thing, bones and all. Speaking of the seemingly translucent ayu, that brings to mind water and mistiness. I have to say, it's been cloudy and foggy in the Bay Area these days. You know, there's a quote often attributed to Mark Twain. The coldest winter I ever spent was the summer in San Francisco. Yes, that quote may be apocryphal, but there's a seed of truth in it. July and August tend to see a lot of fog, as the inland heat from California's Central Valley mingles with the cold ocean current winds to pull fog onto the city. The fog can really bring a chill to the air. Even bright and sunny afternoons can turn cold and foggy just a few hours later. One of my favorite poems as a child was one by Carl Sandburg about fog that captures the spirit of the weather there. Even if he was originally talking about Chicago, I think it's still apt, wherever you find foggy days. The fog comes on little cat feet. It sits looking over harbor and city on silent haunches and then moves on. The fog rolls in is one of the micro-seasons of the beginning of autumn season. Naturally, the haiku writer Isa noted this seasonal occurrence as well. Autumn fog. The river beaches pinks, barely visible. Meanwhile, not too far from foggy San Francisco, other cities around the Bay Area can get stiflingly hot. Yes, further inland you don't get the same winds blowing in from the ocean for relief. There's a notable exception, though, in the form of the Delta breezes. Between the Bay Area and the Central Valley is an area called the Delta. It's lower than the surrounding area, so essentially creates a bit of a wind tunnel through which cooler marine air is pulled inland by atmospheric pressure created by the less dense, warm air of the valley. The resulting delta breezes are a cool reprieve from the summer heat. There's a lot of science to these meteorological phenomena, but understanding the science of wind does nothing to diminish its poetic loveliness, I think. We can still feel the same sense of seasonality when the winds arrive, as poets have throughout the ages. Color of the wind, sparsely planted, autumn garden. Autumn wind, more transparent than water, fins of a fish. Speaking of the Delta, in Cortland, a small farming town in this region, 
there's a festival every year to celebrate the pear harvest. Cortland is known for Bartlett pears, delicate, sweet, and with that friendly pear flavor. The pear harvest. That sounds like so much fun. This season brings with it an abundance of fruit, doesn't it? Tomatoes, pears, plums, peaches, green beans, zucchini, and summer squash. So many great fruits and vegetables are in season right now. There's one vegetable that may not be considered as much of a seasonal pleasure along those others, but one which I think still deserves a special nod. The onion. Onion. Luminous flask. Your beauty formed petal by petal. Crystal scales expanded you and in the secrecy of the dark earth, your belly grew round with dew. Under the earth, the miracle happened. And when your clumsy green stem appeared and your leaves were born like swords in the garden, the earth heaped up her power, showing your naked transparency. And as the remote sea, in lifting the breast of Aphrodite, duplicating the magnolia, so did the earth make you onion, clear as a planet, and destined to shine, constant constellation, round rows of water upon the table of the poor. You made us cry without hurting us. I have praised everything that exists, but to me, Onion, you are more beautiful than a bird of dazzling feathers, heavenly globe, platinum goblet, unmoving dance of the snowy awesome, and the fragrance of the earth lives in your crystalline nature. Under the earth, the miracle happened. Doesn't that beautifully capture what the harvest is all about? Discovering again the miracles nature creates for us through the seasons? And the onion is certainly worthy of such praise. It's time to lift this versatile vegetable out of its humble origins and admire how something so ordinary can become something so delicious. I think what you mean is, it's a good time to harvest onions. You bet. Onions are typically harvested in summer and into the fall before cool weather sets in. Mature onions can spoil if it gets too cold for them. You'll know your onions are ready when their tops turn brown. Onions are pretty hardy and easy to grow, but you want to be sure to keep your onions away from fruits like apples or pears or even potatoes. The pungency of the onion can affect the taste of other produce. The pungent varieties do store well on their own, though. Keep the tops of the onions on, and you can string them together. Stringing onions is a great traditional way of storing a large number of bulbs, and it's simple to do. You can hang them up in a dry, dark place until you need them. Again, this does work best with more pungent types of onions. It's better to use sweet onions early. Drying onions such as you just described brings my thoughts to wintertime and a cozy kitchen. There's an old saying about using onions to predict winter weather. Onion skin very thin, mild winter coming in. Onion skin thick and tough, coming winter cold and rough. 
so we know winter was already on farmers' minds during this time of year. Yes, there's a reason that this time was known as the start of autumn. Although wintertime seems far away, traditional preparations for the wintertime season were already well underway. Yes, preserving food for winter begins in spring, but it's in these late summer months and into autumn that it's really put into high gear. During this time of year, there are all sorts of things ready to be preserved, whether that is in a pot or a jar. In the West, canning tends to be our custom. Here's a poem which describes all the excitement about this seasonal event. There's a wondrous smell of spices in the kitchen, most bewitching. There are fruits cut into slices that just set the palate itching. There's the sound of spoon on platter and the rattle and the clatter. And a bunch of kids are hasting to the splendid joy of tasting. It's the fragrant time of year when fruit cannon days are here. This poem reminds me of August blackberries, which I consider a kigo, or seasonal word. And did you try to make jam with them? Jam, pies, cornbread, you name it. There was something lovely about those wild blackberries. They were full of seeds, but their flavor was so deep. To me, their taste was both the height of summer and the beginning of autumn. I used to make a jam with just a touch of cinnamon in it and called it autumn blackberry. I guess you could say that wild blackberries represent the end of summer to me. That's a lovely memory. Listeners, do you have any flavors that signify the end of summer to you? For me, I also have happy blackberry memories. And other than that, figs. I have a memory of eating figs right off the tree one late summer's day when I came to visit you in Davis. I remember that. Didn't you say those were your first figs? They were, and since then, they have become a true favorite. And you wrote a haiku for me that I have never forgotten. Hot dregs of summer, into the green a ladder. Sweet, fresh figs for Kit. Aw, you remember that. Well, that was a day full of happy memories for me. Those sweet, fresh figs made a lasting impression. I'm glad you enjoyed them. California's Mediterranean-like climate lends itself well to fig growing. The state's best-known fig variety is the dark purple mission fig, which should be dusky and even a little withered-looking for true sweetness. They truly are a delectable treat, delicious on their own, or try them with cheese and a bit of honey. We also have a special recipe on our website, one which combines blackberries and figs, and an upcoming ingredient for the autumn season ahead. Late summer in a bite. While we're talking about summer memories though, there's a particular flower that recalls summer days for me, zinnias. Oh, zinnias are such a beautiful flower. And this is the perfect time of year to admire their bright, heavy blooms. Like peal of a bugle upon the still night, so flames her deep scarlet in dim forest light. A heart throb of color lit up the dim nook, a dash of deep scarlet, the dark shadows shook. 
Thou darling of August, thou flame of her flame, tis only bold autumn thy ardor can tame. I'm not sure the zinnia is the flower referred to in this poem, but I think it could still be suitable. Zinnias are bursts of rich color. Their round, daisy-like flower heads make them ideal as cut flowers. They're gorgeous in bouquets. And they're also popular with our friends, the summer butterflies. Yes, when I think of zinnias, I think of bright colors of deep summer. One variety in particular seems designed just for this season, the State Fair series. State Fair zinnias are the tallest variety, with stems that grow up to 30 inches. Ah, the State Fair. It does make me think of that beloved summer pastime. I'm going to miss the State Fair this year. Yes, but don't worry, kid. It's also said that zinnias symbolize thoughts of absent friends. Absent this year, perhaps, but not forgotten. Maybe, as annuals, zinnias remind us that there's always next year. Before we leave the garden, there's one more fruit of the season I'd like to discuss. Vitis, or the common grape. Grape culture, or viticulture, is probably as old as civilization itself. Archaeological evidence suggests humans began growing grapes as early as 6500 BC during the Neolithic era. By 4000 BC, grape growing extended from Transcaucasia to Asia Minor and through the Nile Delta of Egypt. Grapes also have a place at the table in the world of science. Legend has it, one late summer afternoon, the celebrated 16th century Italian scientist and philosopher Galileo Galilei, was looking at how the light fell on golden bunches of grapes on the hills of Tuscany, and, experiencing an epiphany, uttered the following words. The sun, with all those planets revolving around it and dependent on it, can still ripen a bunch of grapes as if it had nothing else in the universe to do. During this season, grapes seem to glow with the light of the sun. Here's a few haiku about them. Purple, so deep, as to make them black. Grapes! Just delivered from my hometown a box of tasseled grapes. This haiku and its subject of grapes sent through delivery alludes to a Japanese summertime custom known as Ochugen. Over the centuries, the meaning and purpose of Ochugen has evolved, but nowadays these gifts are sent as a respectful summer greeting. Depending on where you are in Japan, these summertime gifts can be delivered anywhere from mid-July to mid-August. It's nice to have an opportunity to show you care, especially through sending fruit at the height of summer. As this haiku alludes, Hometown might be a kigo of the season because it is deeply linked with a mid-August festival and time period known as Obon. Obon is the Buddhist festival of souls. Traditionally, this is the time when the souls of the ancestors came to visit the living for three days. During Obon, some families visit grave sites or make offerings at family altars at home. Many people return to their hometowns for this festival, 
and this is one of the reasons why the week of Obon is considered a peak travel season. At the end of Obon, the ancestors' souls are sent back, with fires and lanterns being lit to guide the souls home. However, the ancestors aren't riding the Shinkansen, or the bullet train, back. The more traditional form of their celestial transportation is a bit more four-legged. It's believed that ancestors ride shoryouma, or spirit horses, for a swift journey home to their families. For their return, they ride an ox, for a more leisurely journey. You can sometimes find representations of these two spirit animals in the form of two very seasonal vegetables. Can you guess? Vegetables? I'm curious. A cucumber for the horse and an eggplant for the ox. You'll often find these two vegetables impaled with four chopstick legs scattered around home entrances or at local temples and other sacred spots. For many years, I wondered what these vegetable figurines could be until I learned of this. In the following haiku, the poet Isa captures the essence of Obon. A cricket rides, unsteadily. Horse-shaped eggplant. Horse-shaped melons and ancestors, worshipped together. Another symbol of the season we touched on briefly last episode, hozuki, or Chinese lantern plants, are often bought and sold during this season, as they resemble the lanterns that light the way for the ancestors. There's a myriad of local customs, rituals, and food surrounding Obon, but one of the most important aspects is Obon Odori, or Obon Dance. The folk dance originated to welcome the spirits of the dead and varies from region to region. Every place seems to have their own dance and style. The dances can represent things too. One famous dance is the coal mining Tankobushi. This dance, from the southern island of Kyushu, depicts actions in mines such as shoveling coal, throwing a bag of coal over the shoulders, wiping sweat from the brow, and pushing the cart of coal. Here are the lyrics to the song. The moon has come out. Oh, the moon is out, heave ho. Over McKay coal mine has the moon come out. The chimney is so high. I wonder if the moon chokes on the smoke. Heave ho. However, my favorite omonodori is yakyuken, or baseball fist. The lyrics describe the various plays in baseball, and the dance moves mimic them. Swinging the bat, running the bases, greeting the zealous fans, calling strikes and outs. It's a lot of fun. Although originating as a cheerleading song in the 1930s, it's now well-known throughout the country and a part of the annual Matsuyama Odori Festival held from August 11th to 13th. Another common event surrounding Obon are Toro Nagashi, or light offerings that you float down a river to the sea, most auspicious towards the west, where it is believed are the souls of those who have passed away. As they float down the river, they twinkle like stars in the sky. 
They are a lovely and introspective element to this festival as the earth reflects the heavens. The end of summer is both a time of life and death. Yet no matter the season, there is always beauty to be found, especially in the night sky. Here's a poem which captures the spirit of the season, from jam jars to starry nights. There are not enough jam jars to can this summer sky at night. I want to spread those little meteors on a hunk of still warm bread this winter. The night sky of August gives us a good reason to keep looking up. The Perseid meteor shower will be passing overhead this season, with meteors majestically streaking across the stars. Every year, the Earth crosses the orbital path of the comet Swift-Tuttle, the parent of the meteor shower. The Perseid meteor shower is most visible across the northern hemisphere each year from about mid-July and typically peaks mid-August. This year, 2020, the peak of the meteor shower is expected to last from August 11th to August 13th, when you may get a chance to see up to 50 meteors per hour. So many meteors! One can't help but feel a sense of awe and wonder. If you'd like to watch the meteor shower yourself, the best way to ensure you'll see lots of meteors is to find a viewing spot with dark, open sky. The Perseids can certainly be fully enjoyed without any former knowledge of astronomy, but if you know the constellation Perseus, you'll find that all Perseids come from a point in front of that constellation. Hence the name, Perseids. As with all forces of nature, meteors can be unpredictable. There's no way to know for sure how many you'll see on any given night. However, if you wait patiently from a good viewing spot, you'll have a good chance to see at least a few. Now, my loneliness following the fireworks. Look, a falling star. Thank you for joining us on this journey through the sky, the earth, and our lives during the beginning of autumn. In the season ahead, we hope you take time to appreciate the bounty of the harvest and the beauty of the night skies. As was once said, August is when summer gathers up her robes of glory and like a dream of beauty, glides away. Similarly, this episode comes to an end. In this episode, some of the seasonal words or kigo we explored are the dog days of summer, ayu, fog, delta breezes, onions, blackberries, figs, zinnias, obon, and the Perseid meteor shower. What are some other words you associate with the end of summer and the beginning of autumn? If you'd like to share, email nourishingjapan at gmail.com and we'll post your seasonal words to our Facebook group. The works featured in this podcast are in the public domain or with permission from their creators. If you'd like to learn more about them, please visit our website, nourishingjapan.com. We'd like to extend a special thanks once again to Hiroaki Sato for his contribution segment, Hiro's Corner, narrated in this episode by Ed von Adderkass. We'd also like to thank James Paul Gregory, Jason Berner, 
Carl Smith, Burnaby Ted Costales, Tim Turner, Nikki, Boomer Barr, Porfirio Figueroa, Jennifer Kennedy, Ariel Kurtz, and Bahia Simons Lane for their readings in this episode. We'd also like to thank Jackie Meyer for her Dog Days inspired poetry written and recited in this episode. And thank you to Chris Whitaker for his renditions of Tankobushi and Yakyu Ken. As author and illustrator Tasha Tudor wrote, In August, swallows southward fly, summer's waning, fall is nigh. So too is our episode waning. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, when the fall season will be well and truly underway. See you in another season.